Bible you're reading from this morning. Little, little background, I've talked about this on Wednesday nights during our Bible study. You know, this is in what's called a paracopy. Whenever you see those words that are italicized and things in your chapters that divide up the chapters, those are called a paracopy. And those are put in by whoever publishes your Bible translation. But sometimes people want to know, where do the chapters come from, right? Because Mark, when he was sitting down to write this initially, initially, did not put a big number 10 and then start writing. And each couple of lines put a little bitty number right? Where did that come from? Well, in the 300s, there was a guy by the name of Eusebius, and he actually divided all four of the Gospels into sections. Now, if you thought Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had plenty of chapters, get a load of this. He took Matthew and put it into 355 sections. That's a lot, right? Matthew has 28 chapters. He took Mark, 235 sections, Luke into 343, and John into 232. Well, that's kind of ridiculous, right? So that was pretty much the standard for a long time until around the 1200s, this guy by the name of Stephen Langton comes along. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he put in around the, like I said, 1228, he put in chapters. Now, these were very rough chapters. They were kind of left up to whoever was printing the Bible. And you have to remember, at that point, the Bible was all in Latin. It wasn't in Greek and Hebrew, and it wasn't in English, for sure. It wasn't in any readable language. It was kept kind of in the dark. But there were chapters put in around that time, and these would last up until the time of the Reformation, when a guy by the name of Robert Estienne, sometimes called Robert Stephanus, he was the editor for John Calvin, actually, he comes along, and he puts in, in around 1551, he puts in the actual chapters, and by 1552 had put in all the verses that we now use today. He did this using a Greek New Testament. How many of you know Greek? Yeah, I'm, I'm learning, okay? I'm still learning Greek, and it's really hard. But he goes along, he does this in a year's time. And then uh, by, by 1560, he publishes what's called the Geneva Bible. And within that Bible, all the, New, all the New Testament, Old Testament, all the chapters and verses that we still use today were put in at that time. Now, chapters and verses are great, right? We like those because we say for Bible study, this week we're doing Ephesians 4 verses what, you know, 1 and 2 or whatever. But they're not really there in the, in the actual Bible. When you are doing your personal reading, it's, it's sometimes a good idea to pretend those numbers aren't even there and just read it as if it's a letter because that's the way it was originally written. And so when we get into the message today, what you're going to see is we are picking up still in the same context, the same story as the message from last week, the rich young ruler. This is, in a sense, I know the title of the message is Camels and Needles, and that's that's my cleverness, I guess, for all its limits on display. But there's the, the real title of this might be The Rich Young Ruler Part 2, The Aftermath, right? It, it's kind of uh, the, what's the fallout of that interaction. And so we're going to read that this morning. If you would, stand for the reading of the word. And last week, Pastor Calvin said I was all over the place, so he had a hard time following me with the, the camera. Today, for, for Jacob's sake, I'm going to try and stay in one place. But we're going to begin reading in verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last First, you may be seated this morning. That's the word of God. This isn't the word of Jeff, 
It's not even the word of faith assembly. That's, that's the words of Jesus right there. And like I said, this is kind of the sequel, the aftermath. Now, if you recall last week, this rich young ruler from the synagogue, he had come running to Jesus, which was a shameful thing for a man of station to do. They don't typically run because they had to hoist up their robes, if you remember me talking about that. And, and he kneels down before Jesus and he says to him, Lord, what must I do? Actually, he said, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus tells him, if you, if you really want to inherit the kingdom of God, you have to follow the commandments. And then, and then the guy says, well, I've done this since I was a little kid. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing you're still lacking then. Go sell everything you own, give to the poor, and then come follow me. In other words, give up all of your possessions. Give them up entirely. And the young man leaves. He walks away grieving and depressed, upset about this because he was someone who owned much property. And if you remember, I said the property really owned him. That's why he's so upset. And Jesus, when he looked at this young man, he loved him and he gave him the truth. He gave him the, the actual word that mattered, but that didn't appease him. That didn't seem to matter. In fact, it says in verse 22, with these words, he was saddened. He went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And this theme is going to continue. This theme of what he's telling this young man about being willing to give up everything and follow Jesus, that theme is going to follow. But now Jesus' focus is centered on the disciples. Sorry if I'm moving too much already, Jake. He's, he's going to focus on them. And so we're going to read in the text again, verse 23, Jesus looking around said to his disciples he says to them how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God now this has to be if we're really honest and we look at this this has to be an awkward scene how many people come to Jesus and don't get what they were expecting well the Pharisees sure the scribes yeah the Sadducees of course but for somebody to come to Jesus and really want truth sincerely asking Jesus what do I have to do it's very rare that they would walk away so this is this is a guy who came to Jesus for something and didn't get what he wanted but he had good intentions or so it would seem and now everyone just kind of left there and Jesus looks around almost as if to say does anybody else want to go he gathers their attention. He looks, he focuses on the disciples. Why does he zero in on the disciples? Because they are going, they are heading towards Jerusalem, if you remember, back in verse uh, 17, and he was setting out on a journey. He was setting out on his path towards the cross, towards Jerusalem. And so those disciples are left standing there, and they are the ones, once he dies and rises from the grave and ascends into heaven, these are the 12 men, well, 11, okay? These are the 11 men who are going to be left to proceed to tell the truth of the gospel, and they are going to face rejection too. He's training them. He's preparing them for the life that they are going to have after he's gone away from them. Church, we have to remember something that we're seeing very evident in this transition in the, in the story. No matter how good the teaching, no matter how good the preaching, no matter how loving the church, no matter how wonderful the worship, no matter how powerful the gospel, there will be always, there will always be those who reject it. There will always be those who say, that's not for me, or you ask too much of me. There will always be a rejection of Christ in the world as it is. He says how hard, the Greek word for hard there is diskalos, not didaskalos, diskalos. And the tense of the word matters here. The way Jesus says this word, he's saying it does not happen without a great difficulty. He's saying it is almost impossible Almost impossible for those who are wealthy. The Greek is kromos and akontos. The ESV says it a little better here. It says those who have wealth. 
But that's still not firm enough. That's not accurate enough. Because if we're really being honest, what's literally being said, it doesn't happen with... It doesn't happen unless without great difficulty for those who have a firm grip on their wealth. For those who want to cling to their wealth, their money, their things. You see, we understand, many of us as Christians, we know that money is a pitfall for the unbeliever, right? We see, we watch people chase the dream and fall on their faces and lose everything. My brother-in-law used to work at the C-store in Hannaford, and he said people would come in with their checks, their weekly checks, and half of it they would spend on the lotto tickets that week because just hoping their ship was going to come in. And how much more money would they have if they just saved that money and didn't waste it all? But we see that in the unbeliever's life, in those who don't follow Christ, this chasing after wealth. We know that's, that's a, sore, a, a horrible thing for them to do. But how much more so the love of money for the Christian? Because for the Christian, what often ends up happening is we negotiate with our wealth. We rationalize our wealth until we spiritualize our wealth. And finally, we begin to idolize our wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 9, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy, he says those, and he's referring to those Christians, those Christians who want to get rich fall into, into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into destruction. Those Christians who pursue money first, who pursue wealth only, only to find destruction waiting for them. In verse 10 of that chapter, he goes on and he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. What do they say when a, when a scandal breaks out, when a conspiracy theory happens? What do they, what's the word, what do they always say? Follow the money. money. Follow the money, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. And he goes on, and this is what Paul tells Timothy in verse 17. He says, command or instruct, depending on your translation, instruct those who are rich to set their hope on God and not, be, and, and not wealth because he supplies all things to enjoy. Why does he command them? Why does he instruct this? Many times Paul says, I urge you. Or I would plead with you. He says, no, for the church, you have to instruct them of this. They have to know it is not okay for a Christian to pursue wealth above all things. We are to pursue God above all things. Why would he say that? Because Paul knows. He's friends with Luke. Right? And Luke's the one who said, uh, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and wealth. For the Christian, it is all or nothing. It's about Christ and Christ alone. It's about God and God alone. It can't be God and money. It can't be Jesus and my other things. It has to be focused on him. Wealth begins to breed a false sense of security. King, we become, in a, in a sense, we become kings of our own little molehills, our own little golden uh, mountains. And we won't see the eternal city of Revelation 21, 21, whose streets are paved with gold if we are clinging to the gold in our, in our own personal vaults. We go on in verse 24, and it says, The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, they're amazed because some of them likely had some wealth. Peter, for example, what did he give up? He gave up his boat. He gave up his business. Matthew left a tax business. Some of them might have been wealthy before they went to follow Jesus. So they're kind of shocked at this. What exactly are you getting at, Jesus? Imagine their faces had that, are you serious? Kind of look at him. Do you know what I gave up, Jesus? Do you know what you're saying to me? Jesus absolutely does know. And if you notice, if you read this, you see his tone is very tender and very loving to his disciples right here. He's not rebuking anyone. He's not coming down hard on anybody. In fact, he calls them children, 
Now you might, if I came up to, to someone like Wes is a little older than me, I said a little, and I began to say, now child, you need to talk, you need to do this, and this is how we play the drum. You'd think I'm mocking him, right? Especially since I'm talking about playing the drums and I have no idea how to do that. I'd be chiding him, I'd be making fun. That is not what Jesus is doing. When Jesus is calling them children, it's, it's not to mock, belittle, or insult. It is a loving, endearing way of speaking from a rabbi to his students. We see this in John 13, 33. He says, little children, I'll be with you a little longer. Jesus is not putting them down. He's lovingly explaining to them a hard truth. Not everybody. Not everybody's going to make it. You will have people reject you. You will have people reject you because of me. In fact, that's what he says later. He's being very clear, very loving, that there is a cost to following Christ. We have to ask ourselves, do we surrender? Do we surrender to Christ? And we often spend our lives stocking the the U-Haul that we hope to pull behind our hearse, right? Someone secure in their treasures and their pleasures of this life will likely not be willing to live for the next. And I I forgot to mention this, but the one thing I hope you take from this message is that we have to surrender all to him. To gain the kingdom of God, Christ calls us to complete surrender. I'll say that again. To gain the kingdom of God, he calls us to complete surrender. And we've already seen that in this text, that if we're not willing to do that, we will be one of those many who don't make it. He says, children, how hard it is. And here the tense has changed. The Greek has changed. In other words, what he's saying is how hard it is. It's only going to happen under the most extreme of efforts. It is so close to impossible. And then Jesus is about to blow their minds. He's going to say something so incredible that throughout history is going to be debated and talked about. This is, this is huge. He says in verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, many of you have probably heard this talked about before. Um, someone asked me about this earlier this week. Um, what about the, the needle gate, right? There was no gate in Jerusalem called the needle gate. There's no archaeological evidence of that. There's no proof of that ever existing. I know I heard this preached when I was in junior high, I believe, and I remember thinking the very same thing I'm about to tell you, that the the way it was presented was there was an area of Jerusalem in the gate that was actually very small, and for a camel to get through it, you had to unload everything, get the camel to somehow crawl on its knees to go through this doorway, this pathway, and that it was greatly difficult, but you could do it. That is not what Jesus is saying here. And by the way, if you heard that much like I did, you probably thought, Why not just go around? There's got to be a bigger gate somewhere. Why would they even have that? Why would you try to fit a camel? That doesn't make common sense. Well, of course, because it didn't exist. There was no needle gate. There was no eye of the needle for the camel to go through in the walls of the city. When we try to do that, when we try to force that into what Jesus is saying, we're actually trivializing and belittling the power of his words. We're robbing them of of the vastness of what he's trying to get across. Now, the Persians had an expression. When something seemed improbable or impossible, they would say, well, it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. But in first century Palestine, Jesus' audience, they didn't see a lot of elephants. They would have known camels. So what Jesus is really doing is he's taking the biggest, most awkward, if we're honest, right, most awkward looking creature and saying it's easier for one of those to fit through the eye of a needle. Now, I know there's another teaching out there that says that they got the Greek wrong, that Mark might have messed up. There's the the word camelos, which is camel, and the word camelos, which is big, thick rope. Now, that 
makes a little more sense, right? Like if you're into sewing, you know a string goes through the eye of a needle trying to force a rope through there. Again, it's not what's happening here. And by the way, to teach that, you're trying to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three don't know their Greek and make a mistake on this. They didn't. Jesus is very clear here. Take a, take a camel. How tall is a camel? About this tall? Right? At least. Right? I haven't been to the zoo in a while. Forgive me. And I don't know, the eye of a needle is about the size of the tip of this pin. Is it going to get through that very easily? No. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is an impossible task. And when we really understand the point he's trying to make here, he's saying salvation by human effort is impossible. For the human being to think they are going to earn or buy their salvation, it is impossible. We have free will, yes, but we do not earn our salvation. Absolutely not. The believer is responsible to respond to the call of salvation, not to earn it, not to try and buy it, not to try and steal it or rob it, and we'll, we'll get into that as we go. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gracious gift. It's a free gift. But it comes from him. It comes from God. It's not something we're going to take on our own. Salvation is free to you and to me, but we understand it was paid for by God, right? Paid for on, on the cross of Christ. We cannot earn it. We cannot purchase it. We cannot steal it. We cannot borrow it. We can only repent and believe in it. We can only surrender our life, surrender all that we have, all that we are, if we hope to gain a new life in Christ. We go on in verse 26, and it says, And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? You see, they understand this sounds impossible. There's no way a camel is going to fit through the eye of a needle. There's no way. Even more astonished, it literally would be read, they were struck outside their own minds. They were just so taken aback by what Jesus has just said. And so the question they asked, and it has depth to it. Then who? Jesus who then do you think can inherit eternal life? Who can, who can come into the kingdom of God? Who can enter the kingdom of God then, Jesus? Who can be saved? And the real subtle question here is, Jesus, then who has any hope? Who has any chance at eternity with you? Who has eternity with God? There's no way this could happen. You see, the mindset of the culture... The mindset of the Jewish culture of this day was that the rich had all the power. The rich had all the favor and the rich had all the influence and therefore the rich were obviously going to come into the kingdom of God. And the question is, if the rich can't be saved, what hope do I have? You see, they, they thought that this wealth was giving the rich a head start and the rabbis taught this. The rabbis of the first century would teach this very thing. It's a type of prosperity gospel that God's blessing equals material wealth and God's favor equals physical health. They would teach this. That if you were wealthy, that somehow you were already blessed. God had his eye on you. That's not, that's not the truth. And Jesus is, is shattering that. And it's actually ironic that they would teach this because they were the ones who studied the Old Testament. They were the ones who knew books like Job. How many of you have read the book of Job recently? I was just talking with someone this morning about that. A few of you, okay. Isn't it easy to want to skip over parts of Job when his friends, quote unquote friends, are talking? Because they're the bad guys. We know they're not, the, they're not really saying anything worth reading. But we shouldn't disregard it. We should pay attention to it. In fact, 
Eliphaz, his first friend, he basically tells Job, he says, and I'm summarizing here, if you truly sought God, if you were truly righteous, he says, your seed will be many, your children like crops. Do you understand what he's telling Job, who's lost his children, by the way. His children have died tragically, suddenly, out of nowhere. And his best friend, the first guy to talk to him, basically says, you know, Job, if you really had the favor of God, your kids would still be alive. Who says such a thing? These guys are not good counselors. They're horrible friends. And they expose their lack of wisdom with every word they speak. His friend Bildad, in, in chapter 8, he's going to say, God does not reject blameless men. And the, the implication is, Job, clearly God has rejected you because you've lost all your wealth. You've lost all your prosperity. You've lost all, uh, everything that you had. All your servants are gone. All your money, all your cattle, it's all disappeared. So clearly God's rejected you. Again, when we read the book of Job, we understand he's wrong, but this is what the rabbis would teach. Zophar, his, his, his third friend, Job's third friend, says that Job must have secret, unconfessed sin. In chapter 11, he says, set your heart, put away evil, and God will bless you with material things. Job says, what are you talking about? I've done all these things. I've tried to be righteous. I've followed the law. I've made sacrifices. In fact, in chapter 9, he says the reason he would sacrifice after every time his kids would go and throw their little parties, he would sacrifice to atone for their sins just in case they did something wrong. So God's wrath didn't come. Because that was their mindset. And yet here it is. And this is the same mindset that flows throughout the crowd that now surrounds Jesus. They're basically saying, if you're righteous, God will bless you. And if, you, if God has blessed you, that means if you're wealthy, that means God favors you. God has his eye upon you. Like I said, wealth had become this measuring stick for holiness, for anointing, for righteousness. We see this even today. Live your blessed life now. Right? Pay your tithes, get good buys was a trending hashtag a while back. Jesus says that's not the case. The idea, the mere suggestion that wealth could be a bad thing to the disciples and to the, the crowd surrounding Jesus, that's inconceivable. It's mind-blowing. Salvation, then, therefore, it begins to seem unattainable. There's no way. There's no hope. I have to do something. And there we circle back to the rich young ruler and what he said, teacher, what must I do? It's not what you do, it's what you believe. We read on in verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation from man is impossible. Nothing is impossible when God is involved, though. He's actually quoting Genesis 18 here, verse 14. If you know that story, God is speaking to Abraham about Sarah, who's 90 years old. And she's going to have a baby. And he says, it's not, what, what's impossible with God? Nothing. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's exactly what he says. And he leaves. And what happens? A 90-something-year-old lady has a baby. An, a, a needle begins to fit around a camel. God is involved. God is offering his salvation. Salvation only comes from God through Christ. Psalm 3.8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 68, 19, and 20 says, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of salvation. You see, we, we so often, we feel we have to do something. We have to make it happen. But the Apostle Paul, he says, he says Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not it's not based on works, so no one can boast. We cannot make salvation happen. 
without God first having offered it, first having made a way, first stretching out his hands to us. We know he does that through the cross. Paul goes on in Ephesians and he says, we are all under sin. There is no one righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. No one does these things on their own. Without the Holy Spirit, without God in love, having already done what needs to happen for us to have a relationship with him. For the relationship between God and man to be restored. If you have your Bible, real quick, turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read really fast here. I don't want to lose my place. <laughs> Romans 3, 23 to, to verse 25, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's a memory verse. We know that part. But read on. This is where the verses, the verse numbers comes into play. Being justified as a gift by his grace through, rede through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see what I mean? It's not what we do. It's where our trust lies. It's where our faith resides. It's in him. It's in Christ. This is the message of Paul. This is the message of Christ. This is the message of the apostles. We do not earn our salvation. We don't make it happen. We only submit. We only give our hearts to the Lord. No amount of money will pay to buy your salvation. Only God can pay that price. We can't earn it. We can only repent and believe. This was the message of the rich young ruler, if you recall last week. He ran to Christ, but he walked away grieving. But if we run to repent, if we come to him, we will walk away changed, made new, under grace, free from sin and shame, and given the free gift of eternal life. This idea of, of wealth as a gateway, as a, as a stepping stone or, or a, a, a head start or something like that, Jesus not only rebukes that teaching. Now, I want to be clear, he's not rebuking the people. He is rebuking this teaching. He, Jesus not only rebukes it, he actively attacks it in other places. In Luke 16, he tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you re recall that story, Lazarus was a poor man who, who sat outside the rich man's house. He would eat crumbs from his table and the dogs would lick his sores, which is really gross. But the rich man and his wealth would just stay in the house and he was content just to live his life. He thought he was blessed. And they both die and they end up in the afterlife and, and the rich man sees the poor man being comforted by Abraham and he, he asks for just a drop of water and Abraham looks at him and says, no, not even, we, even if we wanted to help you, we can't, but, but you received your good things in life. And yet even still, you didn't love God, you didn't love your neighbor, his neighbor being Lazarus. Now people would have heard that and they would have, they would have, that, that's such a foreign concept to them. Though you mean the rich man isn't the hero? Nope. You mean the rich man didn't somehow curry favor with God? No. Luke 12, Jesus tells this parable of the rich fool who stores up produce and his wealth and he's going to coast through the rest of his life. And God tells him, you fool, this very night your soul is required. Now who will own what you've prepared? In other words, your wealth does not buy you true happiness. Your wealth does not buy you eternal happiness. And so is the one who stores up treasures and pleasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, it's not wrong to own nice things. I said this last week. It's not wrong to have nice things. But if our nice things have us, it's sin. 
It's wrong. It's separating you. It's coming between you and your Savior. It is an idol. It may not be a statue of wood or a statue of gold, but it is something that you are worshiping and putting in place of him. And we go on to verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter. This guy really should probably just not speak. If you really understand what he's saying, and I relate to Peter a lot because I like to say things too before I think a lot of times. And, and Peter is doing this right here because Peter is really exposing a lot. He's the self-proclaimed self or, or self-promoted spokesman for the disciples. And you know what he's saying is, look what we've given up, Jesus. Look how good we are, Jesus. Look what we've done, Jesus. Aren't we? We're cool, right? We're good. Now, Peter has grounds to do this. Peter is someone who did give up a lot. When Jesus came along the seashore that day and he said, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Way back in chapter one, what's Peter do? Okay, let's go. Andrew, get up. Let's follow him. And they go. He's one of the first ones to abandon everything for the cause of Christ. So he's not wrong. He's not lying in what he's saying here. But really what he's asking is, so what does my faith get me, Jesus? What's in it for us? What's our reward? What's my reward? You know, this shows us as the disciples were still looking at Jesus as someone who was going to bring them material gain. He was going to give them, some, they're, they're looking at Jesus and he's now headed towards the cross. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And what's the disciples, what are they asking? What's our cut? What do I get out of all this, Jesus? You understand? We've, we've given up stuff. Matthew's account says it a little, a little clearer. Peter answered and said, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? The intention is made very clear there. I want to clarify something. I want to make this crystal clear. You cannot earn or buy salvation, but when we approach God in humble prayer and we surrender all to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and he reveals that the true greatest treasure is Christ. And, it is, and he, that treasure, is worth so much more than all the treasures of this life, which are one day going to fade away. It is only through trust in Christ, faith in Christ, that we can be saved. We read on in verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. And we're going to walk through this in the next verse. Jesus is not rebuking Peter. Jesus is not coming down hard on Peter here. He's speaking with tenderness and love this whole time. He says, Truly I say to you. In other words, you can trust what I'm about to tell you. We covered that last week. Jesus is probably the only person, the only rabbi who does this when he speaks, when he teaches. They can trust him here. This is a true statement. No one will be without a reward. And then he lists the things they have left. And you notice he says house. He doesn't say home. Home is where the heart is, right? That, sta that statement is true here. Your, your house is just a building. It's just a dwelling place. It might be something that you own. It might be a place where you dwell, but that is not necessarily your home. 1 Peter 1 makes it very clear that our home is in the next life. We are living for a heavenly home. And if we live for our home here, we'll likely not leave for our home there. But if we leave our house, if we follow Jesus... We inherit that eternal home. He mentions brothers. Now in Jewish law, your brother was your safety net. He was the guy, if something happened to you, he was the guy who was going to take care of your wife and your kids and your family and your property. He was going to ensure your legacy. He was going to take care of everything. But if you leave him, 
There's no plan B. Your brother was your kinsman redeemer. Remember from the Ruth series? He was someone you could trust. And he says, sisters. Now, sisters, they could be given in marriage. You could get a dowry. You could get a nice payment, right? That's one way of looking at that. But you also have to remember that in Jewish culture, brothers were very protective of their sisters. And if you're leaving your sister, you're leaving them without protection. You're trusting the man that is married to them to take care of them now. And on top of that, brothers and sisters, they're your siblings. They're your first friends. They're your first network, right? Most of us who have siblings, you'd agree with that, unless you hate your brother or sister, in which case maybe, maybe not so true. But in this culture, that would very much be the case. He says, father and mother. Now, Jesus has just recently talked about honoring your father and mother when the Sadducees came. So he's not talking about dishonoring them when you leave. What he's referring to is leaving them to be joined with Christ. And if we look back at verse 7 in chapter 10, Jesus says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. He's talking about marriage. When we're joined with Christ, we also leave our father and mother in that sense. We are now joined to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Our bodies are joined with Christ. Making that very clear. And he says, children, that's, this is a hard teaching. Jesus, you want me to abandon my kids? And he's not talking about child neglect here. You would leave them in, in, in good care or make sure they were taken care of, but you still leave them. Children can, e can easily become an idol. They can also become an excuse. I'll, leave you, I'll, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I still got to take care of my kids. Yes, you do have to take care of your kids, but don't use them as an excuse for not following Christ. I want my kids to be happy. How many of you have heard someone say that? But if your kid's happiness interferes with the holiness of your home, that's sin. There's a problem. And adult children, adult children can lead us astray. I know a pastor I respect very much. In the last year, had to make a hard choice between his ministry. He claimed to stand for truth, to be a pastor of integrity. And something came up, a controversy within uh, his church and another church, and it was, it was a big deal. And his kids were working at the other church. And to appease his own children, he sacrificed his integrity. And it, it fractured his church. And it lost him a lot of respect with a lot of people. Jesus goes on, he mentions farms. He says, farms are not, by the way, they're not just property. That's your business. That's your income. Again, that's your legacy. That's your livelihood. If you're going to leave that, you have no plan B. You have no savings account. You have no, nothing else to go back to. Same is true with us. Is your workplace toxic? Is it infecting your, not affecting, but infecting your walk with Christ? It's okay to look for another job. It's okay to ask for help. If we abandon something for the gospel's sake, the good news' sake, to teach, to preach, to share, to defend, to live the gospel, that Christ died, rose from the grave, that's good news worth living for. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement, Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am chief. What have we surrendered for that message? What have, that's a question to ask ourselves. What have I given up for that truth? We go back to verse 30, and Jesus is now going to say something even more confusing almost. He says in verse 30, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now we look at all of that. Jesus doesn't say you're going to receive 100%. He says you're going to receive 100 times. And this gets twisted this gets turned into come to Jesus and he's going to give you all you want. He's going, to, he's going to bless you abundantly with jet airplanes and mansions and things like that. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is when you've given up one house, a thousand doors will be open to you. 
If you've lost a brother in the flesh, in the church, in the body of Christ, you gain a thousand brothers, a thousand sisters. But we also have to look at this. We gain that with persecutions. How does that make sense? We have eternal life now. We gain Christ now. We get a new family, new home. I can understand that. But now I have to watch that new family suffer, possibly be tortured, all those things. That, it doesn't make sense. How, does, how do we rationalize that? How do we explain the scripture? Well, it's very easy if we think about it. Between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead that comes at the return of Christ, there's overlap. The old is passing away. The new is coming. The old is passing away. That's why there's suffering. The news being fulfilled, that's where the blessing and the hope of Christ lies. So we receive blessing, but we understand there will be tribulation. There will be persecution. There will be hard times. Christ promises to fulfill our needs, not our earthly desires. It's because of this and this understanding that the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, he, he says, I've learned how to be content in all circumstances, whether they're humble or abundant, filled or hungry. And then he says this, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that makes an awesome coffee cup. That makes a really good Facebook post. But what Paul is saying is, I can endure because I have surrendered myself to the cause of Christ. I can make it because I've surrendered all. He's not saying you can work three jobs with only two hours of sleep every night. He's not saying you can bench press a car. He's saying we can endure. We can make it because we have surrendered all. I want to point out one thing before we move on to the next passage. Verse 30, you don't see one thing. One thing is absent from the list of things in the previous verse. And if you're very closely examining it, you'll notice it quickly. It's the word father. When you come to Christ, you are not missing a father. You are given a father, a heavenly father, a good father. You will never be without a good father ever again. We are not abandoned by him. We are not forgotten by him. We are not neglected by him because he is good. Do you remember the, the rich young ruler, good teacher? Jesus said, there's nobody good but God. I have a father. I think he's a good guy, right? I talked about that last week. Well, people are good, yeah, right? They're kind, they're loving. They're, this, my dad's a good trapper, good fur trapper, vice president of the Illinois Trappers Association. I'm proud of my dad for that. You go to Southern Illinois in my, my area and you ask for who's the best electrician, they'll say, Carol Williams, he's the, one of the best proud of my dad for that. He's good, good at what he does. And he's a good man. But he's nothing compared to my good father. He's nothing compared to my heavenly father. And he's watching this, so I'm going to get a phone call about this. <laughs> good means morally perfect, if you remember correctly. My dad is far from morally perfect. Our father is. Our father is perfect. And he is worth surrendering all to. He is worth his son. Actually, you are worth his son. I said that wrong. Sorry. You understand. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God said, You are so loved by, by God that I will sacrifice myself for you. You are so loved. He doesn't say because you're so good. He doesn't say because you're so awesome. He doesn't say because you're so wealthy or rich or righteous or holy. None of those things. But you are loved. You are so loved. God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave up. For us, we surrender all to him. Someone once said, God does not love us because we have value. We have value because God loves us. That is so true. We were worth the cross to Christ. What is Christ worth to us? 
We read on in verse 31, the last verse, it says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who are first now will be last then. Many who are last now will be first then. Those who surrender now will enjoy a richness far greater than the wealth of this world. Have you surrendered to the King of Kings? What left do you have to surrender to the King of Kings? We say, Lord, I surrender all. We sing that song, I surrender all. But so many times, if we said it honestly, we'd say, I surrender all, but not this. I surrender all, but Lord, don't look at that. I surrender all, but Jesus, just let me have this for another day. No. It is only when we surrender all we can hope to gain the kingdom of God. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up, worship team to come back on the platform to sing. We're going to close in a, in a song. And we're closing out this paracopy, this section of scripture. To gain the kingdom, Christ calls us to surrender all. Now some can't. Some won't. Because they love this life too much and they're going to be trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle for the rest of their earthly life. But I'd ask you today, what does surrender look like? What does true surrender look like in your life? Last week I asked you, what are our idols? What are the things we put before God? What are the things that own us? I'd like to shift that a little this morning and ask you, what is hindering your walk? What hinders your walk even now? Hebrews 12.1 says to cast off the things that so easily entangle us. Let us run our race. Well, what sin is ensnaring you? What treasures or pleasures keep you from running your race today? What has entangled you? And we're going to sing. And maybe, maybe as we sing, you're going to say, I don't have any material things that ensnare me. I don't have anything that holds me down. Maybe it's not material. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's mental. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's greed. Maybe you really want something you know is wrong to have. Maybe it's a sin that you thought you had defeated that somehow keeps cropping up in your life. As we sing today, I would ask you, have, ask the Holy Spirit, expose this to me. Let me confess it. Help me. Give me the strength to let go of it today that I might cling to Christ. Let's surrender today. And when the song is over, I'll dismiss in a word of prayer. Find a place to pray where you are. Come to the front. We'd be happy to pray with you. You do not do this alone.